The readings of Holy Scripture tonight come from Matthew 26, verses 1 to 29, and then Exodus 12, verses 1 to 28. So Matthew 26, if you'd like to be turning there, and then if you want to keep your finger to mark the page in your Bible for Exodus 12 as well. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Some of you still don't trust me that I will get there. Matthew 26, beginning at verse 1. This is God's word. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, And she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum of money and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then... One of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. 
And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe, woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Exodus chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it, <clears throat> you may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute 
Forever you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly. And on the seventh day a holy holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared for you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill The Passover lamb, take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door. And will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is a sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, So they did. So far the reading of God's holy word. We give thanks for it. You may be seated. As we turn to these portions of scripture, let us pray for God's help. O Lord, our God, we are thankful for all your many blessings, and we are thankful for this whole day that is set apart for rest in you. A day wherein you nourish your people, feeding us on your word. This morning, you confirmed the word that nourishes us in your supper. And tonight, we consider the significance of that supper as you teach it in your word. Help us to see the richness of this ordinance that we keep, this ordinance that we will keep until Christ return, that we might treasure it up and its practice in our midst all the more. Overcome the deficiencies of the preacher, 
They are significant. And bless the reading and the preaching of your word to bring forth fruit in our hearts to love you more, to serve you better. And we ask it all in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So in upscale restaurants, not that I've been to lots of them, but I have heard that the kitchen usually has a chef's table, right, where the chef himself or herself uh, hosts special guests. Right? These guests get to see how the food is prepared, but also sit with the chef to eat and enjoy the meal. It's a privilege to sit at this table because the commander of this domain owns stocks and invites people to it. And if we think about this idea of the chef's table, we can note a few interesting things, right? First, you don't get just to waltz up to this table, do you? There are prerequisites, namely being on the list, invited, accepted by the chef. And second, when you get to eat at that special table, in no way, in no way would you be thinking that you are the one doing the work there. You're the recipient. The focus is not on your action, but on the chefs who set this table for you. Your contribution is receiving, not doing. Right? So now, we continue to think about the God's ordinary means of grace. Those outward ordinances of word, sacrament, and prayer, whereby God applies Christ and his benefits to his people. We've seen that the read and preached word is the power of God to address his people, now considering how the sacraments are his power to assure his people of his promises. And the sacraments contain the same message and same blessings as God's word, so that we might hear and hold the word and its gospel. Baptism is the sacrament that admits us into the visible church, sealing our initiation in Christ, effectively granting its blessings from Christ by faith. And now we come to the Lord's Supper, the sacrament of continuation. We have the sacrament of initiation and now the sacrament of continuation in Christ. Like the chef's table, it also has some prerequisites to come to it. One, you do need to be baptized. Since our earliest writings after the Bible, after the Bible, Christians have said that no one can come to the Lord's table unless they are first baptized. For example, one very ancient writing called uh, the Didache, which just means the teachings, uh, it was kind of a, a handbook, uh, of, uh, kind of our BCO of sorts, you might think, but a long time ago, uh, stated, let no one eat or drink of your Eucharist except those who have been baptized into the name of the Lord. For the Lord has also spoken concerning that, which is really interesting how he cites this, do not give what is holy to dogs. Interesting use of uh, Mark chapter 9 there. Then, though, 
we also have another prerequisite. As 1 Corinthians 11 teaches, you need to make a profession of faith before you can come to this table. You need to discern the Lord's body if you are to receive his supper. And so this meal, as we say every time we take it, is for the recognized people of God, accepted into membership as professing believers. Now, that's, that's the first interesting thing. At least so far I've thought it was interesting. Second, like the chef's table, our focus should also be on the one who sets this table and gives us this food. Not pretending that the Lord's Supper is a meal that is our work for God. Too many evangelicals turn the sacraments into our performances rather than God's promises. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are things God does for us as his people, not something that we do for him. Although certainly we remember Christ as we take the supper and do it in remembrance of him, still the focus is not on our act of remembering as, is, as if this is a work for us to perform. Rather, we remember Christ in the supper precisely because our focus is on what he is presently providing and doing for us as we eat. As we've usually done then in this series, we're going to take our lead for this topic from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. So question 96 answers uh, tells us that the, the Lord's Supper is a sacrament wherein the giving and receiving of bread and wine, according to Christ's appointment, well, there his death is showed forth, and worthy receivers are, not after a corporal and carnal manner, but by faith, made partakers of his body and blood with all his benefits to their spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. Now, okay, so the outline of what we're going to do is that tonight we're going to take up roughly the first half of that statement concerning what the supper is as bread and wine showing forth Christ's death. And then next Sunday night, the sermon will think about the second half regarding how we receive Christ's body, blood, and benefits in the supper. You can probably imagine why I'm eager to buy more time for that one. Uh, Our main point, though, is that the Lord's Supper is a meal testifying to Christ's sufficiency as our Savior. The Lord's Supper is a meal testifying to Christ's sufficiency as our Savior. We are going to think about that together in three points. A set supper, a sacrificial supper, and a sufficient supper. So first, let's think about a set supper. And our first task is to reflect upon how the supper is, in fact. We don't just want to assume it, but we want to reflect well on how the supper is God's work for us rather than our work before him. And the main reason 
to think about this topic is to see the supper as a gift given to God's people. There, if, if we think historically, there's a long history, uh, and I've known, I've known people, I'm not just making this up, I've known people from these places and labored in some, two of them. <laughs> there's a long history, especially in America, Scotland, and the Netherlands, of Christians avoiding the table, for a number of reasons. And that is, in fact, what motivates why we need to think well about this. In, in the Netherlands, usually the cause is because people feel unworthy to come to the table, which misses the point that this is a meal for strengthening unworthy sinners who need God's help. In America and Scotland, on the other hand, a higher level, really, of experientialism in the understanding of the supper, explains that avoidance. There's often a a call to reflect so forcefully upon our own sin and examining ourselves that Christians buckle under the weight of feeling unassured in their guilt. Because the supper at times has been celebrated so infrequently, Well, the call to this task intensifies, often leaving Christians rather raw in their experience of the supper. And further, the intensity of this call to reflect upon Christ's death adequately, well, not that we can ever measure up to that, right, also makes the supper into a pressurized moment, leaving a lot of Christians saying that they could never bear to receive the supper more frequently. Now I have to wonder if these outlooks reflect the true nature of the supper as a means of grace, wherein Christ applies himself and his benefits to us. For the heavy laden, we should rejoice that Christ, that at what Christ does to comfort us not turn those gifts into more burdens. And so let's think together then first about this passage where Christ institutes the supper. So it's one of three, or at least maybe four if you want to count 1 Corinthians 11 uh, to, but Matthew 26 is the one we're going to consider. And here uh, it recounts the last Passover that Jesus was celebrating, using it to institute his supper to remain in perpetuity for his church. Now, the the setup and execution helps us take away a fundamental point for the Lord's Supper. So so the setup is in verses 17 to 19. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying... Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus directed them, and they prepared the Passover. So, the disciples set up the meal. They arranged the place, right? And seemingly 
arrange the elements, the food that they're using. Well, let's jump down to verses 26 and 27. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. What's interesting here is that Jesus is the one directing the meal. Even though though the disciples laid out the meal, they set the table, right? Jesus is still the host. Jesus is the one spreading the table, inviting people to eat a holy supper, even though somebody else put things there. So, here's the conclusion, or the, the payoff, right? Is We've seen already, when we thought about the word of God, that just like Christ truly preaches through his ordained servants, as they preach, and as Christ truly baptizes as his ordained officers administer water, well, now we see that even though ordained officers set and institute the table, Jesus is the one who hosts the Lord's Supper, both in his day and still in ours. As David prayed to God in Psalm 23, 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, showing how God is the one who hosts a holy meal for his people in the midst of our turbulent world. And so this is a set supper where we are at, a, at the table with a divine host who brings us to eat with him. That brings us to our second point, a sacrificial supper. Sacrificial supper. We've seen so far that Jesus Christ himself is the one who hosts the Lord's Supper. Like getting to sit at the chef's table with the chef himself. It's a special privilege to, the, to come to the meal that he provides. Now we need to think a bit more about the occasion of that first Lord's Supper that still informs us about its significance, namely the Passover. And so uh, Benjamin Warfield was one of old Princeton's best theologians, and he pointed out that the occasion of the Passover ideally suited Christ's purposes for instituting his, well, his new covenant meal, unsurprisingly, since Christ is the same God who instituted both of those meals. So there's a point about Christ's deity and giving meals to his people. Both ordinances are feasts. More central in both is eating the lamb. Right? We should not miss that both meals are ultimately about the same lamb of God. As Warfield summarized the Passover, the lamb that was slain and lay on the table at this feast, namely the Passover, was just the typical representative, meaning uh, the, the type, the symbolic ordinance for signifying Christ and his work. 
of the Lamb that had been slain from the foundation of the world, and in whose hands is the book of life. What is done in the two feasts is therefore precisely the same thing. Jesus Christ is symbolically fed upon in both. We saw early on in this series from Westminster Confession 8.6, which is a profound statement that I think is worthy of our reflection for helping us read the Bible well. Although the work of redemption was not actually wrought by Christ until after his incarnation, yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefits thereof were communicated unto the elect in all ages since the world began, in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices. Just as we receive Christ through the new covenant means of grace, of word, sacrament, and prayer, Old Testament believers received him through their means of grace, the Passover supper being one of them. And so the the Passover event pointed ahead to Christ delivering us. Israelites spread their lamb's blood on the doorpost so that God would spare their firstborn from death. The lamb's blood turned away God's vengeance. And the Passover then included a sacrifice to protect from condemnation. Now another factor is how God also, in addition to this protection that comes through this Passover, how God also gave sacrificial meals to his people. In one sense, that's spelled out uh, in Exodus 12 as we read it, right? That the people eat this lamb that they have slain. And so Leviticus 6 also, though, explains how after priests sacrifice an animal to the Lord, well, they get to eat it as their food, right? The sacrifice was to cover sin, but the meal was God's provision for his people. Indeed, often the meal after a sacrifice is a sign that there is peace between the one who gave the sacrifice and the one who received it. If you get to eat with the person to whom you sacrificed, peace has been made. For a sacrificial meal to occur, the act of sacrifice has and underline this bit, already been done and accepted. You can't eat it, right, until it's been sacrificed and cooked. And peace has been made. And now this is actually important for one of the things that distinguishes us. I think it's, I think it's good to note these things in passing at, at times, though it's not my favorite. The Protestants have long debated with Rome about the supper's sacrificial nature. Rome in the Council of Trent states that the sacrifice, this sacri- the supper is this sacrifice is truly propitiatory, meaning, meaning that in the supper the priest presents a sacrifice that there and then actually turns away God's wrath. They appeal to how the ancient church referred to the supper as a sacrificial meal. And yet we've seen that scripture portrays sacrificial meals 
not as themselves sacrifices, but as moments of communion because a sacrifice has already been made and accepted. Right? And so we should understand the Lord's Supper and and the ancient church's acceptance of it as a meal celebrating peace between two parties. Because, because a previously offered sacrifice has made peace between them. Namely, Christ's death has forever satisfied God's justice for sin for those who trust in Jesus. So the meal is, the Lord's Supper is a sacrificial supper, but one marking that a sacrifice has been made, accepted, and granted reconciliation, acceptance, and communion with God because of when Christ died as the ultimate Lamb of God. That brings us to our final point. A sufficient supper. A sufficient supper. And so there's this one, I don't want to beleaguer it, but there's one last way that we can think about how the Lord's Supper links to the Passover. Uh, Warfield, again, helpfully noted that Christ didn't actually replace the Passover with a new meal. He just adapted the Passover to fit the present administration of God's kingdom in the new covenant. A simple question helps us to see why Christ's renewed trapping for the supper best fits the new covenant. Have you ever thought about what is not on our table? Likely our focus is typically on what is there, what the bread and wine are there to do. In, in the Lord's Supper's connection to the Passover, however, there's actually a wildly conspicuous absence, isn't there? On the Christian table, while the Passover centered around this meal of a sacrificed lamb, literal lamb meat is starkly missing from the Lord's Supper, having just bread and wine. Why? Because whereas... The blood of bulls, goats, and lambs could never truly take away sin, so it had to be repeatedly sacrificed, appearing constantly on the altar and on the Passover table. God's true lamb is the Lord Jesus Christ who has provided an everlastingly effective sacrifice that need never be repeated. We don't need a lamb each time we eat the Lord's Supper because we have an effectual lamb who died on our behalf, removing our sin from us and permanently making peace between God and his people. We can repeatedly eat a sacrificial meal with the Lord without offering a new propitiatory sacrifice because Christ has fully satisfied our debts before the Lord. When we gather to eat the meal of peace and communion, the Lord's Supper, it is always stemming from, always based upon, and always looking back to Christ once and for all death on the cross. There, he fully satisfied all that we needed that we might always have forgiveness in God's sight.
Now, maybe you're thinking that all of this lines up well, but the one thing missing from the chef's table illustration with which we began is that at the chef's table you get to watch the chef prepare the meal before he sets it for you. But indeed, actually, we, we do watch Christ prepare his food and, and his table for us. Because in the supper, we feed upon the gospel. We observe the chef prepare his table then as we hear the gospel. Christ's meal of the Lord's Supper is prepared in preaching Jesus Christ as he speaks through his pastors and then feeds through his pastors. And so the Lord's table table is a sufficient supper because it lacks a new lamb, but contains Christ and his benefits, received by faith to mark our peace with God through the gospel. Let's pray. Father God, we are glad that we have not only a sacrament of beginning, but a sacrament of continuing. That you mark, not only that you bring us in to your church, but that you preserve us in your church. And what that tells us again and again is that you do not bring us into the Christian life and leave us to our own devices, but that continually, through the the profuse and ongoing announcement of the gospel, you feed your people. You sustain us. You are the one who nourishes. You not only birth us into the church, you sustain us in the church. And we are glad to belong to the God who speaks to us, who brings us to new life, and feeds us that we might continue in new life. Every time we take this meal, Lord, help us to think more and more about how richly you give to us in this meal. Not one that we make for you, but one that you give for us. One that's missing a lamb on our table because we have one who stands in heaven forever to plead our case and make our peace with you. We pray it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. People of God, stand to receive your benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all this day, now, and forevermore. And all God's people say, Amen.